we always got like epic music like behind the bumpers of the video, man. I feel like Braveheart is about to come out on stage or something. Uh, if you're new, listen, like I said before, my name's Eric. I'm the location pastor here at the church. And um, I'm the, loca- the location, location pastor for NBC Arlington. So if you're brand new, you, you're wondering what gives. Like we're at the Tyson's location, but you're NBC Arlington. And so I do want to explain this often. I know some of you guys grow tired of hearing this, uh, but we are um, going to enter a 24-7 new building uh, pretty soon. Right? Um, I, I've been giving y'all firm dates, and my dates have been wrong, so I'm not giving you firm dates anymore. Uh, but sometimes September, October area, we're moving back to Arlington and to our new location. Until then, we are here. Yes, amen. We can't wait for that day. But until then, we're meeting here. And so I, I liken it to uh, sleeping on your parents' house until you can get your new crib. Uh, so we're here. Uh, we're making it work. And I appreciate you guys making the drive out here in order for us to have uh, church together. Something like distance shouldn't, shouldn't prohibit us from gathering together uh, as the people of God. And so uh, a couple of announcements before I want to jump in. If you are new, welcome. I want to encourage you guys. If you're new, you're trying to fi- find your way around the church, um, in the lobby after you leave, there'll be people in blue church. Hit them up and they'll let you know like some of the things that we have available to you in terms of life uh, in this community. But one person I want to acknowledge tonight and give it up for is one of the guys who just led us in worship, Giovanni Greenaw, because this is Giovanni's last Sunday with us. Can we give it up for him? <laughs> G, I, I know you're somewhere around here, man. You don't have to come out because I, I know you're embarrassed by all of this. Uh, but I uh, was mentioning to G just how he's like held us down. He's been with us for like the last five years. And I didn't realize, I knew G was a a great guy, faithful guy, willing to do whatever that would help. Didn't realize this until uh, maybe about, I'll say about six months ago, I made the drive up to his house in Maryland in order to drop off a a gift for his child. And I drove about an hour and 15 from Arlington to get to him. And I was thinking, G, I can count on one hand how many weeks he has not led us in worship. We were on Monday nights after work. He works as a school teacher, elementary school teacher. He would get off of work after a long, hard day and drive down to Arlington and lead us in worship. On Sunday nights when he could be spending time with his family, he drives out here to lead us in worship. And he's been incredibly faithful, not just in the way that he's sung, but in the way that he's lived. He's exhibited um, in a small way God's faithfulness and the fact that God is an helper uh, to us. So really, one more time, really quick, I want us to give it up loudly uh, for G and his faithful service to NBC Arlington. Yeah. G, we love you, man. And then tonight, many of you guys know this person. I do want to introduce you, Amy. You don't have to come on stage uh, to Amy Kalajanin. Amy, this was her first week on staff here at NBC Arlington. So we are excited to have her and all the things that she brings to this team. And you'll be seeing much more of her in the days ahead. So Amy, wherever you are, we are excited uh, to have you. Yeah. And um, another announcement, next week at 5 p.m., we're not having a typical Arlington service, but we're having a prayer, worship, and serve night. And so it really is just like it sounds. We're going to gather together next week. We're going to sing songs together, sing praises to our great God. We're going to pray specifically for NBC Arlington and specifically us moving into the new season. And then we're going to talk to you about a a number of different areas that we have for you to serve in the new life of NBC Arlington. So I want to invite all of you to come out. I want you to invite all the people that you know in your life who may be interested in coming to NBC Arlington at the launch or people that you heard that might be interested. We want to be here 
singing praises to God. All right, that was a mouthful, but let me do this. Let me go ahead and turn, or you guys can turn, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, because I am confident, I'm 100% sure that the God of heaven has a word for you tonight. And I'm not saying that based off of something about myself. I'm not saying that based off my oratorical abilities. So many people, we can think that God's word is predicated on the gift of the preacher. I'm not that gifted. But I do know this, whenever God's word is open, he desires to communicate with you and his communication with you, it, it deserves a response. Not one of us should walk out of this auditorium thinking, man, God spoke through his word tonight, but I have absolutely no way in which I need to respond to that. Every single one of us needs to continue. As we hear the word preached, how might we respond in faith and obedience and be careful in order to do that? Uh, as that bumper said, we are in the middle of a series called uh, In Light of Eternity, and we are examining how the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms our life right now. Because you guys get it, there are certain truths that we're all confronted with in life that doesn't immediately change the way that you live your life. I'll give you a couple of examples. Remember growing up, going to high school, there are many things I learned in high school that did not affect the way that I live my life in the future. I wish high school taught me how to, uh, how to, uh, how to buy stocks. I wish high school taught me how to do my taxes. But no, high school was busy teaching me about sine, cosine, tangent. Like, I went off and learned that, became a pastor, have absolutely no use for that. Some of you guys may have use for that. But some of, for you, some of you, the resurrection affects you just like sine, cosine, tangent affects me now. It's this head knowledge that you have in your life, but it doesn't affect the way that you live right now. You see, for many people, they seem to think that by accepting the truth of the resurrection, that they'll pass some sort of test with God and the resurrection really hasn't affected them on a day-to-day -day basis. No part of their day is affected by the truth. You may think that's not me, but let me give you a, of another example that may be you. For many people, there may be truths that you may assume and you believe, but they only affect you on an emotional level. And they have no bearing on your life now either. I'll give you an example of that from my own life. A couple of years back, uh, the pinnacle to my sports fandom existence happened. The Atlanta Falcons played the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. I had never rooted for a team that actually had been in the Super Bowl, so I'm excited. I was excited, as you know, how this game went. At halftime, it was 28-3. My favorite team, the Atlanta Falcons, was winning. I put my kid to sleep at halftime, and I said, Eli, you're going to wake up, and we're going to be Super Bowl champions when we wake up. And if you know how the game went, it didn't end that way. And let me tell you, the truth of that game hurt me. I was hurt to my sports fandom core. But the next day, I mean, I was pretty cool. The next day, if you mentioned the Patriots, man, I might have felt a little twinge in me. But overall, my life was not affected too much by that game. And for another group, they would say the same thing about the resurrection. For many people, the resurrection affects you emotionally. You hear about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you watch the passion of Christ and you shed a little tear, but it really hasn't affected your life. However, hear me today, there are some truths that when you are confronted with them, they have to radically change your life. And the resurrection is one of those. The resurrection should change the way that we think, change the way that we live in the world, change the way that we think about the future. The resurrection is one of those things. If you've truly been confronted 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the result of it is this, is that it will change absolutely everything. See, matter of fact, one of the reasons why, why I am convinced that the resurrection actually happened is because how it transformed the lives of the people who had followed Jesus during that time. Let me explain. The disciples went from a band of guys who tended to be ignorant cowards, and after they claimed to see the risen Christ, these disciples were transformed into bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, to the point that they were willing, almost all of them to a T, gave their lives for belief in that truth. And the transformation of the disciples, I'm going to get a bit nerdy here, but I think this is going to be helpful. The transformation of the disciples is something that all historians, Christian and non-Christian, for the most part, will grant you. Scholars almost universally grant that there was a man named Jesus. Scholars almost universally grant you that he died at the hands of, a Roman, of the Roman authorities and that his disciples claimed to have seen him after his death and claimed that he had risen. And people try to explain that away. Many people say, okay, cool, all those uh, truths are, are real, but they were lying. But think about this, guys. That's not, that, that, that can't be. Because no one ever lies to put themselves in a worse, a worse social situation than they were before. You have to ask yourself, what would the disciples gain about lying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Think about it in your own life. Nobody lies to pay more taxes. Nobody lies to go to prison. Nobody lies to experience ridicule. Nobody lies in order to die. Nothing about the message that the disciples were preaching was socially advantageous. The philosopher Blaise Pascal actually puts it in a more memorable way when he puts it this way. He says, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. Those people who had nothing to gain for lying. Some people may push back on the resurrection. They may say, okay, cool, I'll grant you that or whatever. But people, some people try to explain it in a way, and they say that the disciples were hallucinating. And that's not possible either. Why? Because typically hallucinations were private. There is no such thing in human history as a mass hallucination in which everybody um, said that they saw the same exact thing and believed in it so strongly that they were willing to stake their lives on what they saw. Some people may look at you and they say, hey, you know what? The resurrection may not have happened because uh, we think that Jesus really didn't die. He passed out. Really? It's, it's not true. Like Romans were masters at execution. They knew when somebody was dead. When they wanted somebody dead, they were dead. However, grant that. Grant that he really didn't die. Hear me. It's doubtful that after Jesus got beat down all night long and hung on a Roman cross, that Jesus would be able to remove a, a stone away from a tomb, sneak past a Roman guard, and appear before his disciples in any condition that would make them think that he had risen from the dead. If Jesus had appeared before the disciples beat down on the verge of hanging on to life, they would not think that Jesus had risen from the dead. They would think that Jesus was in desperate need of medical, of, of medical assistance. I say all of this to say the most probable explanation of the transformed lives of followers of Jesus Christ is this, is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I'll give you a quote really quickly by a German philosopher, Wolfhard Pannenberg. He said this, 
He said the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you would have to change the way you lived. See, these disciples were confronted with the reality of the resurrection, and it changed the way that they thought, it changed the way that they lived, it changed the way that they hoped, and they hoped. And my question for you tonight is, what about you? The resurrection isn't something that we just celebrate on Sundays and we wait every week to celebrate it. We celebrate the resurrection with our very lives. It is an event that is an earthquake that shook the entire universe and it's aftershocks of being experienced in the lives of believers in Jesus Christ every single day. Has the resurrection changed you? And it's in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul is writing to a town called Corinth, a church that you would walk into and you would say, what in the world is going on up in this church? Because the people were crazy. Uh, they were, I don't have the time to explain it, but they were often ashamed. But I would say you would go to the church service, you would be polite. But as soon as the pastor say amen, at the end of the service, you would probably say, I'm visiting the church at Philippi next week. I'm not coming back here. They had worldly thoughts, worldly actions, worldly hopes. And yet in this passage, Paul is reasoning with the church and trying to help them understand that those who've actually been confronted with the resurrection are profoundly and, and, and completely changed by it. So let's read it together. Uh, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read you simply verses 12 through verses 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 22. Here we go. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, who, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of God. And the big idea of tonight really is this. The reality of the resurrection changes everything for people who believe it. So I'm going to give you three things that the reality of the resurrection should transform in our lives. And I want you to think about your life and ask yourself, is this true of me? Before I do really quickly, I want to pray. And then we're going to um, dive into these three points. Let's pray together. God, we need you to speak today. We need you to move. Your word is open. We want to hear from you. Father, there's so much noise in our world that we tune out regularly. We tune out background noise and we have the television on where we're doing other things and it's easy for us to tune things out. But Father, I pray that we will lock into your word tonight and that we'll respond appropriately to it. You demand a response to us tonight. Maybe we respond with joy, 
knowing that our sins are being cared for, taken care of, and you have risen from the dead. You are alive, and therefore we will be alive for all eternity. Help us to understand what that means and how we should change. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. First thing I want to give you guys tonight, first point, simple point, it says this. The reality of the resurrection should change the way that you think. The reality of the resurrection should change the way that you think. You may look at me and say, Eric, no duh. Let me read to you the text. Here it is. Verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Let's pause here because Paul actually does something here that's incredibly masterful. See, clearly Paul here is going after beliefs that these people are tempted to believe that are dead wrong. Verse 12, he named it. He says, how can some of you sit here and say that there's no resurrection from the dead? And then what he does is like a philosophy professor. He ties that thought into other things that they will have to accept if they believe that is true. So straight up, he says, if you believe that there's no resurrection from the dead, then there's a couple of other things that you'll have to admit that you're not ready to admit. He names them. He even says it. He says, the resurre- he says if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is false, he says in those verses, if you believe that people don't rise, then one, Christ didn't rise. Are you ready to admit that? And because that means also as well that you're still lost in your sins, that you still stand condemned before God because of those. He keeps going. He says, if you believe that there's no resurrection, he says, pretty much you're telling me that everything that I've been doing with my life, Paul is talking, all the beatdowns that he's experienced, all the ridicule that he's been experiencing, all the preaching that he's done, he said, what you're telling me is you believe, if you don't believe in a resurrection, that everything that I'm doing is in vain. And then he says, pretty much what you're saying is that you're wasting your own time right now. Pretty much he's straight up saying, he's talking to the church here. He's talking to us even tonight. He's saying, what is the point of there being no, what is the point of your life if there's no resurrection? Why are you here? Why are you listening to this letter being read? Why do we gather together and singing the praises to God and hearing the word preached if there is no resurrection? Why bother with all of this? Because if, the, if dead is the ultimate end for people, then death was the ultimate end for Jesus. And what Paul is trying to do is just tease out, like I said before, the implications of this wrong belief that they all have. And he's saying, look, you can't say that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and believe that. When you are confronted with the truth of the resurrection, that belief should change every single thing about you. That belief because of bedrock conviction in you. The resurrection changes everything. Where am I going with all of this? Has the resurrection changed you? How has it changed the way that you think? Let me give you a couple of examples of how it should change you. It should change your thoughts. It should change your mind about yourself. If you truly believe that there's a resurrection and that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, listen to me. It changes everything about you. It changes the way that you think about the past. What do I mean by that? 
Since Jesus has risen and you believed in him, listen, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You've been forgiven. The past happened, but the past no longer defines you. You serve a risen savior and therefore you are now a child of God. The resurrection also changes how you think about the future. Since Christ has risen, listen to me, when you believe in him, your life in the future is eternally better than where life finds you right now. Even if you're in the throes of hardship or you're on the heights of highs in this world, guess what? Eternity is far better. There's no more nervousness you have to have about the future, no more anxiety you have to have about the future. Our God has secured you come what may because Jesus is risen from the dead. Not only that, it changes your mind and your thoughts about the present. You are loved by God right now. You are forgiven by God right now. You are not an accident. You are not insignificant. And not only does the resurrection change your mind about you right now, listen to me, the resurrection changes your mind about the people around you. For so many of us, we look at people through the eyes and the lenses of our world rather than the lenses of God. And so what it means, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, listen to me, there is not one person in your life that is outside of the reach of God. If God the Father worked his power in his son by raising him from the dead, Ephesians 2, if that happened, there is no one, absolutely no one outside of the reach of God. His arm is not so short that he can't save. And also this means as well, in a place like D.C. where there's so many significant people, that's not the lens that the resurrection allows us to peer through. The resurrection declares that there's no one in your life that's insignificant. Why is that? Because we serve a Savior that was snubbed as insignificant and he was lifted up with all rule and authority. Who are you tempted to overlook in life? There are no insignificant people. C.S. Lewis actually put it this way, man. I love this quote because it's a helpful reminder to me. And I pray for you. If you feel like you feel insignificant, I pray that this will encourage you. Hear this. He says this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most, and he doesn't mean God and goddesses literally. Uh, let, let me explain to you. He says, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you may be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only if in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to, to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, and it's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There, is, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their, li and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What he's trying to articulate there is every single person you interact with is a person whose life will extend to all eternity. Even the most insignificant people in this life that you're tempted to write off, that is a life that would extend into eternity. You're not talking to mere mortals. There's a resurrection. 
and that changes the way that we view people. Let's keep moving. Here's my next point. The reality of the resurrection not only changes your mind and the way that you think, it also changes the way that you live. The truth of the resurrection doesn't just stay right here. It should, it should move through our hands and feet and determine our behavior. Look at verse 17. He continues with his reasons. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, in verse 19, you, you can look at that and think that Paul is saying, well, listen, y'all, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, everyone is to be pitied because this life is all that there is. And he's saying that, but he's saying actually something a bit more than that. He's saying here, listen to me, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, that there is a group of people, himself included, that should get more pity. Why is that? Because the people that should get the most pity if Christ didn't rise are the people who, who, who gave the most up because of it. I'll say that again. Because the people that should get the most pity if Christ didn't rise are the people who gave the most up because of it. Let me explain it to you. I don't know if you've ever seen a game of poker, right? I don't know if you've ever, like, seen one on television or, or, or whatever. But if you've ever seen it, it can get really depressing really quick. And I'll tell you why. Especially when there's two people at the table and they both think that they have the best hand. And let me tell you why it can get depressing. Man, you've seen this. You, you, maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've seen it uh, on TV or something. You've seen a poker game in which people toss in their cards. They already know that, hey, th th they're going to fold. Well, these two people are one upping one another, and all of a sudden, one guy is so confident that he has the best hand that he says, yo, I'm going all in. And the other person does it as well, and you're holding your breath at the table. Why? Because you already know that one of these people is about to be extremely pitied. One of these people are about to lose it all. One of these people, everything that they bought to the game, they're about to walk away empty-handed, and they believed that they had the best hand. They went all in, and they were ultimately wrong. And Paul is saying here, forget a poker table. He said, I went in with my life, all in. That the reality of the resurrection rocked me, Paul is talking, and I was so filled with joy and, and, and excitement because of it, and I went all in. I gave up everything. He actually says it in Philippians 3. He describes it. He talks about how he gave up all kinds of power, all kinds of prestige. And he says, I indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Christ is risen. He is Lord. He's worthy of us fully following him and giving our lives up for following him. Paul says, I'm all in. He had it all. He had power and prestige in the world's eyes, and he gave it all up. He was thrown into prison. He was beat down. He was deserted even by friends, and he was eventually killed because he believed in the resurrection. He went all in, and if the resurrection isn't true, he's right. He's a person that should most be pitied. But the resurrection is true. And my question for you today is because the resurrection is true, here's my question for you. Would your life be pitied? Would your life be pitied? Has your life changed to the point that people would say, I pity you if Christ didn't rise? Are you all in?
Let me give you some examples. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, would the way that you pursue your career be pitied? For too many of us, man, we claim to believe in the resurrection, but the calculus that we, that, that we have in our heads in order um, to, to determine what kind of jobs that we'll pursue and how high we'll climb up the corporate ladder and how much time that we'll spend to that uh, 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 contra the time that we spend with the family of God, it's driven not by the Bible, it's driven more so by our worldview handed to us by the world. Many of us... Our only factor of pursuing careers is how much money does it pay me and how much power will I have? My question is for many of you, if Christ did not rise from the dead, would the way that you pursue your career be pitied? I know that's the case with some of you. I know for one person specifically that I talked to in the last two weeks, uh, this person took a job in a particular place and uh, she was presented with a salary that was half as much. as what she was getting somewhere else. And I looked at her and I was like, yo, are you sure? When she was talking specifically about this, there were factors at play when she determined I wanted to live my life in a way that if the resurrection isn't true, this move wouldn't make sense. Let me keep moving. If Christ rise from the dead, would your relationship status be pitied? So what I mean by that, And I do want to affirm that singleness and marriage, both of those relationship statuses are places where the joy of Jesus Christ can reach you. None of those are pity within the economy of God. But we live in a society in which when you're past your 30s and even in your 40s, people look around and they try to figure out where do you fit. And I know for a fact that there are many people in our congregation right now who could have a dating partner and a spouse right now. If they weren't factoring in that they wanted a dating partner and a spouse that deeply loved Jesus and wants to serve him. For many of you, you've said nope to that because I want to live a life that if the resurrection is true, I want to give my life to that. Here's another question. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, would your bank account be pitied? For many of us, man, I'm not talking about long-range planning, and I know, yes, we do need to save for the future. Proverbs actually says that it's good for us to save for the future. But there should be a way in which we are using our finances for the glory of God and for the the sake of his name in the world, that when people look at that, they would say, man, you could probably live in a bigger house. You could probably live in a nicer car. You could probably have some much more incredible anonymities in your life, but you are giving your, you, you, you are putting your money where your heart is. And you're giving your life for the sake of the kingdom. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, all that to say, I don't know what the Spirit is speaking to you right now in a particular place, but if Christ didn't rise from the dead, would your choices be pitied? And I say all of this to say, man, not to be heavy-handed, but the only response, the only appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to go all in with your life. It's to go all in with your life. It's the only appropriate response. Christ has risen And I do want to give you guys this last point as well, and, and I love this point. The reality of the resurrection should not simply change the way that we think, it even just the, same, the way that we live. There's some forward thinking in regards to the resurrection. The resurrection should also change the way that we hope, that we hope. Look at verse 20. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I want you to highlight a word. So in verse 20, there's this word, uh, first fruits. And some of you guys might not be entirely sure what that means. Now, a lot of us don't know what that means because we're so far removed from the culture in which uh, this passage was, uh, was writing in. Uh, I feel like for many of us, first fruits, that's a word that's similar to like eight-track player. Like anybody know what an eight-track player is? Some of y'all, some of y'all. I know Joe Rose is saying really quick. I said, I know what an eight-track player is. Dial-up internet. I don't know if any of you guys ever experienced that. That was my childhood, right? But those who are steeped in Jewish culture knew what first fruits were. Let me explain. They knew their history. They knew that God had set apart the people of Israel unto himself and gave them his law in order to, in order to do that to set these people apart from the world unto himself. And one of the things that God told people, the people of Israel to do, is that when they harvested crops, that they were to bring a representative sample called the first fruits to the priest as an offering to the Lord. We actually see this in Leviticus 23.10. You see, a full harvest in, in this environment couldn't be made until the first fruits were offered. You see where I'm going here? Ultimately, the first fruits came before the harvest. Listen, you knew the rest of the crops were going to get pulled out of the ground because the first fruits, the first fruits were pulled up first and offered to the Lord. And similarly, here's the question. How do we know that we will get pulled out of the ground when we die? How do we know that death isn't the end? How do we know that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die isn't a philosophy that we should just give our lives to? How do we know this? Well, ultimately, it's because Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus was pulled from the ground first. He rose from the dead, and Hebrews says that it was an acceptable sacrifice to God. And Jesus' resurrection in the past, listen to me, means your resurrection in the future. Jesus is the first fruit. We don't die and cease to exist. We will live forever if you know Jesus with Jesus. And this changes how you hope. It absolutely shatters it. It changes it. Because for many of us, we hope for things that can happen tomorrow or next year. Or if I work really hard, uh, tomorrow would be better. If I work really, really, really hard, next year would be better. But when you see Christ's resurrection, listen to me tonight. You now live with the hope for the next life. And this may cause you to make decisions that don't make sense in this life. It may cause you to make decisions that don't make sense tomorrow, don't make sense in the eyes of the world in two years, or don't make sense for the next 10 years of your life, but they do make sense for eternity. Listen, you know that you are hoping for eternity when you make decisions that only seem, seem right in light of eternity. Think about it, y'all. Why would you share the gospel, especially in this climate? Well, you're sure when you share the gospel, man, ridicule might meet you. It's because you're thinking about eternity rather than your reputation tomorrow or next week. Why would you serve the helpless and people that can't repay you? Why, why would you even do that and do that in secret? 
It's because you're thinking about eternity and the fact that God sees you even in that. And there are no insignificant people in light of eternity. Why would you patiently suffer for the sake of obeying Jesus? It's because you're thinking about eternity and the fact that God rewards you. And so my deep prayer for you today, even as I close, is that the resurrection will loom much larger in our lives and that that will affect what we do on our day-to-day basis right now. And so you may be looking at me right now and you're thinking, yo, Eric, what do I do? I understand the facts that you're saying. I cognitively agree with that. But when I think about my life right now, I'll be honest with you, my life really isn't a great response to Jesus' resurrection. Man, I live pretty much the same way um, that the guy in the cubicle next to me lives. I pursue the same things for the same reasons that he does. How should the resurrection change my day to day? I'm going to give you two quick things before I close. The band can go in and come out. Two really quick things. The first one's going to sound really, really morbid, but at least the next thing, okay? Here's the first thing I want to give you. For the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your future resurrection to loom large in your life, one of the things that you have to do is to remember death. It's to remember death. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, I came face to face with a man who didn't have long to live. His name was Jamie. Uh, he was 39 years old, and uh, he used to actually attend NBC Arlington a long time ago. And it was cancer. Uh, Almost two weeks ago, I walked into a dark hospital room. His mother was sitting beside him, standing vigil. She had already lost his son 10 years ago in the war, and she felt like Jamie um, was the only thing that she had left. He could barely talk at the moment. He was intubated, and he could barely talk over a whisper, so he, we communicated by, um, by, by him squeezing my hand. And so in that moment, man, we communicated through yes or no questions. I asked him, hey, have you trusted in Jesus as, and Jesus alone as your Savior? He squeezed my hand and I asked him, do you know that he cares for you and he loves you even now? He, he squeezed my hand and I asked him a few more questions and read the word of God over them and prayed over them with his grieving mother right there and read the word of God over them. And I quietly excused myself, 39 years old. I'm not saying this to be morbid or to scare you, but it's crazy when I stepped out of the wall, out of the walls of Georgetown Hospital, and I drove home with the radio off that day. And it was so interesting, man, and I saw so many people on the street, and I began to connect some dots. As I drove back home through Georgetown, I saw many people going in and out of shops on the, on the uh, Georgetown waterfront, and I drove over into Arlington and Roslyn, and Saw so many people trying to beat the lunch rush in order to punch the clock for the next half day's work. And all my thought was in that moment is, isn't all of this meaningless if we all end up in a bed like Jamie? I imagine all those people hustling all around D.C. and Arlington. I imagine they know cognitively that everyone dies. However, for them, death is somebody else's problem, not theirs. It's not their problem. This guy's 39 years old. And I say all of that to say this. I'm not trying to be morbid. However, the reason why the resurrection doesn't loom large for many of us is because we refuse to think about death. Think about it. Our whole lives, we spend on, we spend putting on creams on our faces in order to make ourselves look younger and stop the process of aging. 
We put the elderly out of sight in nursing homes and we cordon off death to ICUs all because we don't want to be reminded that, that, that we are dust and that death is coming. For us, death is somebody else's problem. We try to remove the sting of death from our lives and in doing so, we no longer feel acutely the hope for the resurrection. One pastor put it this way, man, and I've carried this quote along with me for the last year. He says this, as long as death is somebody else's problem, Jesus will always be somebody else's savior. And I'm not telling you this to focus on death in a morbid sense, morbid sense but I want to encourage you to do exactly what Psalm 90:12 says. It says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It is foolish for you to think that you're going to go on forever and live as such. How will your actions, how will your actions be viewed in light of eternity, not two minutes from now? But I don't want to, I don't, don't want to leave you there. The one part of application is not for you to remember death. I want you to remember death and experience a bit of the sting of it. Because the resurrection is the balm to the sting of death. So my second um, issue is this, not just remember death, anticipate the resurrection. Guys, as soon as you feel that sting of death, we need to know, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we have a Savior who is willing and able to apply the balm of resurrection life. Death no longer has to sting because we serve a Savior who was victorious over death and we live in that victory. Amen? Oh, death, where's your sting? And I pray desperately, even as we close, that we will be a people for whom the anticipation of the resurrection grows in your life. Let me give you another reason why, for many of us, we don't anticipate the resurrection. Here's the thing. You will never anticipate the resurrection when you are hooked on immediate gratification. You will never fall in love with the return of Jesus when you are in love with the things of this world. And so in light of that, we need to develop together as the people of God the discipline of anticipating, the discipline of waiting well, the discipline of all of this. I'll get more concrete. For many of us, what we need to do is surround ourselves with other people who anticipate the resurrection. I've seen this in my own life and in a number of different areas, well, in this area and a number of different others, but here, by way of analogy, I, 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 never, I never anticipated the, uh, the release of Marvel movies until I was around people who watched Marvel movies. They got me hooked. All of a sudden, I'm waiting for the next one to come out. And here's the thing. You will never learn to anticipate the resurrection of Jesus until you are in a community of people who anticipate the resurrection of Jesus and encourage you to make choices that anticipate the resurrection of Jesus. You need people in your life that will tell you, hey, that choice makes sense for two years, but that choice doesn't make sense for eternity. Choose the eternal choice. And the last but not least, and I'm gonna sit down, man. I'm sorry, I haven't preached in a while, man. I had to, yeah. But here's the next one. We need to give ourselves to formative practices that shape anticipation. What do I mean by that? Like I said before, for some of us, we are so hooked on immediate gratification and we're not thinking 10 years. We're not thinking 100 years from now. We're thinking right now. And the Holy Spirit of God has given us a number of different practices, what we call spiritual disciplines, that help shape us and form us more to the image of Jesus Christ. 
So yes, we need to be in our Bibles and rehearse the words of the resurrection one. We need to pray together, but there are other practices there that we even see in scriptures that help us anticipate the resurrection. And let me give you one that's been the case in my own life. The spiritual discipline of secrecy. What is, it? What is secrecy? Secrecy is doing good things without an effort of being seen. We see this in Matthew 6, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And I found in my life that being a spiritual discipline that God has used to help me yearn more for eternity because when I do things not in order to be seen and I intentionally hide things that I'm doing, guess what it, co- what, guess what it costs me to anticipate? The fact that God sees them and he'll eventually say, well done. So I want to encourage you guys to do all these things and to remember that a resurrection is coming and I want for every single one of us to live a life that doesn't make sense unless Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And let me take a moment to pray and then we're going to take communion together. And let's pray together. Father, may we live lives that declare your greatness. May we live lives that declare your great worth, that you are God alone. May we live lives that declare that in your presence there is fullness of joy in your right hand, our pledges forevermore. May our lives declare that in eternity that is coming, in which there will be no more suffering, no more pain, there will be no more earthquakes, like what was just experienced in Haiti, and no more civil unrest. Like we see in Afghanistan right now. We yearn for that day, we hope for that day, and may we live in light of that day. Father, for many of us in this room, our, our, our lives don't look like that we believe that Jesus Christ is actually returning. We live lives of immediate gratification and shallow hopes. But Father, as your people, I pray that we will see clearly who you are and what you've done for us. And may we respond appropriately, giving you our whole lives. May we go all in. We need you, God. We can't do that on our own. It is your spirit that sustains us. It is your spirit that keeps us. And so we need you to do just that. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.